We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf. And I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And today we are going to be talking about the new Netflix film, Don't Look Up, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, among basically a who's who of Hollywood Hollywood royalty. Uh, and we are discussing it today. We're blessed to be discussing it today with a very special guest, um, kind of a who's who of Jewish royalty. A living uh, legend. A living legend, <laughs> Rabbi Arthur Waskow, PhD, uh, who founded and directs the Shalom Center, a prophetic voice for eco and social justice, peace and healing of our wounded earth. Uh, he's co-written He's co-authored, written, or edited 27 books, including the original Freedom Seder, Seasons of Our Joy, God Wrestling Round Two, and Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. Uh, And as my children uh, know him, uh, the author of the legendary book, The Long Narrow Pharaoh and the Midwives Who Gave Birth to Freedom, uh, which they love to read every Pesach. Rabbi Dr. Waskow, so good to see you. Okay, Arthur will do. Okay, all right. Thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you. And I'm delighted to hear that your kids have read our reading, uh, Long Narrow, Narrow Pharaoh. <laughs> well, they they love it. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really kind of a feather in the cap of uh, such an extraordinary career, teaching at Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, um, being awarded an honorary degree from RRC, uh, co-founding the National Chavarah Committee, Rabbis for Human Rights North America, now Trua, and Aleph Alliance for Jewish Renewal. So it's really a, 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 a gift to have you with us today to talk about this movie. Before we get into it, Jesse, you want to give us a little bit of a primer on Don't Look Up? Sure. As Mike said, Don't Look Up um, stars... The who's who of Hollywood, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Jonah Hill, Tyler Perry, uh, Timothy Chalamet, uh, of course, Ariana Grande, Ron Perlman, Kate Blanchett, and uh, the most talented actress of all time, Meryl Streep. Um, and uh, it was really a, a satire uh, written, produced, and directed by Adam McKay. Um, it is the uh, broke the Netflix record for most views of a movie in a single week. This film is a satire in which it is um, revealed that Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, who are scientists, see that um, an asteroid is going to hit the Earth. Um, and it's uh, prepared that... Um, This is going to hit the earth in about six months. And it's so large um, that uh, it's large enough that it will cause a planet-wide extinction event. 
uh, with it impacting the earth. Uh, and after meeting with the president, played by Meryl Streep, and her son, who is really meant to be a, a Donald Trump Jr. figure who serves as chief of staff, played by Jonah Hill, um, they say, oh, you don't have to worry about it. They bring on board uh, this brilliant business scientist. I, I guess he must be like an Elon Musk type yeah. Um, who is who he and uh, himself, uh, along with uh, Jeffrey Bezos, are trying to um, commercialize space travel. They have a plan that they are, are going to take, um, you know, uh, metals and, and uh, precious metals from this uh, asteroid as it's coming towards the Earth. And um, they're going to give it to the wealthy. They're, they're going to create jobs by doing so. Uh, they have a plan of how they're going to destroy it. And then that plan ends up failing. Uh, the uh, president ha has this whole motto, almost like a MAGA type motto of don't look up, that if you don't look up, you don't see what is clearly evidence right in front of our eyes then we don't have to accept science as truth. Um, and so much so that even uh, after it is clearly in the sky and noticeable, they're still saying, don't look up. Some of their followers begin turning on them. Uh, and then spoiler alert, the, the movie ends with everybody dying, uh, except for a select few who get transported into uh, a, a spaceship, which takes them uh, thousands of years later as they sleep until they could find a livable planet and they land on that planet and immediately in the post credit scene Meryl Streep's character is eaten by whatever that uh, species Bronter was. A Brontorok. A Brontorok, as was predicted. Um, that is the movie in a nutshell. We can talk about whether it was a good movie. We can talk about whether it was funny. I think some things are like funny, haha, -ha, and some things are funny because it's true. I think this was uh, funny because uh, it's a little too true and, and it hits a little too close to home for uh, the climate deniers and, and the science deniers in the world that we're living in. It certainly was a lot of movie and uh, The Atlantic uh, called it a primal scream of a movie. And, you know, it reminded me of a of like a movie version of in Billy Madison when Adam Sandler grabs the kid by his cheeks and says, you've got to cherish life. You've got to cherish it. This was a movie that sort of like grabbed you by the lapels and shouted in your face um, uh, about its message. It was like you said, um, Adam McKay has said that this was meant to be a um, uh, a satire about climate change and the political lack of response um, and uh, and social lack of response to climate change. Although it was made uh, over the course of the pandemic, and so it it very much um, takes on I think a, a, a layer of could be talking about uh, our uh, inability sure. to respond to the coronavirus pandemic, the 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 failures of our politics and our leaders. Um, altogether, the dangers of our uh, civil discourse, all of that. So um, there's a lot to talk about here, a lot to get and, into. And, and I would just add also, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character ends up going on the, the morning news shows daily. Um, he was the one who first noticed that, that or with Jennifer Lawrence, uh, who, who was a student of his, letting him know of this comet heading towards Earth. Um, and he ends up being America's sexiest scientist or whatever they, they dub him. And he chooses to 
uh, play that card, uh, right? Because he he's getting fame and fortune as a result. And I think that is an underlying theme of uh, those within the world uh, of science or politics who choose uh, to ignore the future for the immediate personal gain of the present. Right. So there's there's a lot going on here and a lot to talk about. I want to uh, turn it over to our guest, Arthur, to uh, hear your reactions to the movie and, and what it what it brought up for you. Well, the first thing was I sat literally stunned for about half an hour. Just absolutely quiet because it seems so clear that it was in a maybe clumsy way, uh, telling the truth about America. It wasn't just DiCaprio who uh, makes money out of the whole thing. Everybody does, mm -hmm. including the sort of new agey businessman uh, who you would think, if it were truly new age, would be spiritually alert and caring about life and but he ends up as well. So everybody, except maybe the graduate student who's the first uh, discoverer of the comet. Jennifer uh, Lawrence's character, yeah. Everybody is corrupt. I mean, the whole society is, or at least the people who have the power to make anything happen are corrupt. Um, and my half hour of just stunned quiet was because it seemed true. It seems uh, when you look at America, all of the work I've done for, I don't know, at least 20 years now on the climate crisis uh, um, has faced the inability of people to a, care for any species other than homo not so sapiens, B, uh, even care for 99% of the human race. Um, so that just, to have it just, as you say, in your face all at once, <laughs> uh, what, an hour and a half, maybe, two hours, maybe, mm -hmm. uh, was just stunning. So that was my first reaction. Um, my wife, who's Rabbi Phyllis Berman, who uh, loves movies, um, said, well, I get it, but it's not a great movie. As a movie, it's not a great movie. Well, I don't know. It, Maybe this is a peculiar kind of movie, but a movie that can stun you and then attract tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, maybe that's just a different kind of movie. And I mean, if you think getting hit over the head with a hammer is a movie, which is what it was. So much of your rabbinate has been dedicated to our relationship with the planet 
and the environment and what Judaism uh, demands of us uh, to protect this earth and to be God's partners in creation in that regard. Um, and increasingly, there, there have been voices that um, uh, ignore science, right? That, that, I think, was a key point of the, this movie. Um, what does that mean for, for your rabbinate? How do you continue to teach your Torah um, when uh, the, the facts and the truths uh, that, that are, are no longer the same, right? It used to be that there were uh, shared truths, so we can all agree on certain things. There were certain things that were debatable. We can all agree on certain things. We, we, we have this sign in our yard that says, you know, in our home, certain things, right? That, that uh, everybody's made in God's image. In our home, we believe Black Lives Matter, right? In our home, we believe science is real. And the, the fact that we have to debate whether or not science is real in 2022 uh, is, is frustrating um, and disheartening. Well, it is frustrating and it is disheartening. And uh, what I've tried to do um, is to surface, you might say, the science beneath Torah. I mean, one of the problems is that the, the cultural process in America has ended up dividing. It's not totally new. It was the Scopes trial back in the 1920s, I think, um, where uh, somebody was put on trial for trying to teach evolution. Uh, so this isn't new in American society, but it's much more powerful, much more bitterly uh, divided, and much more, oh, it must have been before the 20s because uh, um, oh, things going out of my head. The the future at that point, uh, Secretary of State of the United States was the lawyer for anti-evolution, for the Bible versus evolution. William uh, Jennings Bryan. William Jennings Bryan, right? Yeah. So, what I've tried to do is surface that Torah is not just invented. For example, the most powerful direct piece of Torah altogether about relationships between human society and the earth is chapter 25 and chapter 26 of Leviticus, which says you got to let the earth rest every seventh year. And then it talks about what it means to let it rest. Um, and then it says in chapter 26, chapter 26 says, what happens if you won't let the earth rest? And the answer is, oh, the earth will rest anyway on your head. It will rest with famine, with fire, with flood, with uh, exile, which means mass refugees. Uh, uh, it, I read chapter 26. It sounds to me exactly like the climate scientists talking about what happens if we make the earth over, we flood it with CO2 uh, so that uh, the breathing, the traditional breathing and scientifically shown breathing pattern of the earth, the exchange of CO2 and oxygen between uh, vegetation and animals gets drowned out by too much CO2. There are not enough plants on the planet to uh, 
transform all that CO2 back into, into oxygen so that interbreathing breaks down and the planet's choking. So, um, so what I see is that chapter 25 is not just, oh, suck your thumb and come up with an interesting idea about how to deal with uh, growing uh, crops and growing sheep and so on, but it's based on the real life experience of shepherds and farmers. I mean, the whole Torah is the spiritual hyphen, political hyphen, practical uh, learning of people who were uh, shepherds and farmers and indigenous people living close to the earth. Um, and they did the science they were able to do. So they knew that if you try working the earth, it will die, pieces of it will die. They were only dealing with pieces, a thin sliver of land on the Eastern Mediterranean shore. So that it will die, they knew that, and they tried to teach uh, that sometimes through parables, like the parable of, of uh, the story of the Garden of Eden, I think, is about that. And uh, the story of the manna and uh, Shabbat, is an attempt to say, after the failure of the Garden of Eden parable, <laughs> to say, hey, you can actually have, well, let me go back a step. In the Garden of Eden, the way I see the Garden of Eden, it's the, the voice of reality says, there's incredible, amazing, wonderful abundance here. Eat of it a little self-restraint, one tree, just to prove you're not gonna gobble the whole business. So if we had enough time, I would love to explore the role of the snake and the role of the woman, because I think their role is very interesting and much more important than most uh, interpreters think. Uh, but, the result is the, the new adolescent, the growing out of childhood into adolescent, I think, Eve and, well, she wasn't even named yet, but the, the woman and the man um, make a mistake like adolescents often do, but it's a big mistake. Uh, and as a result, the abundance vanishes and there's suddenly hierarchy women are going to be ruled over by men. But neither one is a command. Each of them is a, a consequence of a mistake. And I think the whole Torah is trying to tell us how to grow up beyond that mistake. Um, then comes one of the teachings of how to grow up, which is the teaching of the mana. Suddenly the universe is abundant again. And it comes and where the end of the story of Eden says, you'll have to work with the sweat pouring down your face to barely get enough to eat every day of your life. It goes out of the way to say every day of your life. Suddenly there's abundance and there's Shabbat. And it takes self-restraint 
but the self-restraint isn't self-denial. What do you get of self-restraint? You Shabbat. That's joyful. That's not denying yourself. So I think there's an attempt to teach. And then comes the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year. So I, what I've been trying to do is to get people to understand that there is a spiritual effort involved in creating science or in creating practical knowledge of the world, like the seventh year sabbatical year. And that the Torah is doing that at the level it does it. And it's often very insightful. And the what we need to do is to integrate the science as truth to a spiritual vision of the world. And it doesn't have to be science versus religion. So it doesn't have to be at all. It should be. It's not what it was in the beginning. So that's what I try. Um, actually, then I define myself trying to deal with the, where did I read? It's very hard to convince somebody of the truth if his paycheck depends on not believing it. So uh, we have the big corporate institutions that I've been calling corporate pharaohs who are bringing carbon corporate pharaohs who are bringing plagues on the earth uh, because they refuse to pay attention uh, as the ancient pharaoh refused to pay attention. Oh, so, uh, well, that, that I think is a, is, is a really important point that the, the movie, I think, brings up in a somewhat clumsy way, um, but, but I think is, is worth us spending a little bit of time talking about now. I, I, I was um, taken by your, your discussion of the Garden of Eve, the Garden of Eden um, story, and it strikes me that, you know, in that telling of it, that the that what you know that one of the things that the serpent might represent is 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 you know t saying to the the voice saying to the human beings like you can um, you can consume and benefit endlessly um, without restriction without barrier uh, and you know the the reality of course is uh, that um, that you know we can um, uh, we, we when we overconsume we uh, we we end up um, undermining our own self-interest, but it does seem like to the point that you just made, you know, one of the, one of the reasons that there's so much uh, resistance to accepting the truth about climate change and the policy responses that accepting that truth would entail is because people perceive that their livelihoods are, uh, are, are rooted in um, it, it, the systems that perpetuate uh, uh, climate change. That was one of the things that I think was was challenging about the movie is that you know uh, in in choosing the you know the asteroid as the metaphor for climate change, it's not a man-made problem. Um, it becomes something of a man-made problem a little bit later on when they discover that there might be rare earth minerals in it. We can mine it instead of destroying it, and mm -hmm. so then it become people become invested in keeping the asteroid. I'm, someone says, "What's Jennifer Lawrence's character's parents say to her? They don't want her to come home because they say to her, um, no, we, we're for the jobs that the asteroid is bringing.'" Right. So, um, so there is that sense within the movie a little bit that. Um, that we want to 
uh, we want to, uh, we're willing to tolerate this impending disaster because we can derive financial benefit from it. Um, but, but it strikes me that that's really kind of what's at stake in yeah. the climate conversation is people um, are, you know, very much uh, uh, invested in the status yeah. quo. Adam McKay, uh, the writer, director, and producer, said that he was frustrated by the fact that the climate crisis was the fourth or fifth news story, or in some cases, not even listed at all. Um, and he said when he was talking to climate scientists looking for good news, he realized that the situation was even worse than what mainstream media was reporting. Um, it was like a comet was heading towards the earth to destroy us and nobody cared. And that's how he got the idea for the movie. Um, and in some ways, well, climate crisis is a uh, man-made problem, right? It, it's our fault. Uh, for those who will eventually deal with that metaphorical comet hitting the earth, it's not their fault. Part of the issue is that, and I think this is why the, the don't look uppers, if you will, are in their camp. It's because they don't care. This will not affect their earth. In most cases, yes, we could talk about how the 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 uh, uh, coastal lines are, are uh, changing and, and that sort of thing. We could talk about changing uh, weather patterns and temperatures. But for the most part, people who are adults now will continue to be able to live their lives with slight adjustments of temperature uh, and will die, right? It's our grandchildren who, who will really feel the effects of a very different world that we're living in. And to them, that is the climate uh, crisis. That is the comet that is heading for the, towards the earth that they can't do anything about. Right, but that you know that's what failed about the metaphor to me is that um, a, you know, an asteroid coming to hit the earth you know, whether, uh, you know, wh whether, whether you, whether you're responsible for it or not, um, whether you choose to believe in it or not, um, it's coming for all of us. Um, and we're going to feel its impact more or less equally, right? It's an extinction level event, right? That means all human beings, except for that handful of people who were able to get on that spaceship to fly off of earth, um, who died in other ways, you know, um, uh, everybody's impacted by it. Uh, it's also, um, relatively speaking, a fast moving disaster compared to climate change, right? So climate change is a slow moving disaster. It's a disaster in slow motion. Um, its uh, impacts are um, not always immediately and obviously apparent. Um, and people uh, you know, it, with, with relative privilege um, are, you know, um, much more uh, insulated from the impacts of climate change, maybe immune to the impacts of, of climate change, uh, at least for a long, long time, right? So, so that's one of the, that's, I think, the bigger challenge of climate change is how do you get people who are um, invested in the systems that produce climate change, who um, don't 
um, who, who can who could explain away some of the impacts of climate change as just kind of like, you know, strange weather that we're having right now. Um, but that's the worst of it, you know, for them that, you know, that that aren't in um, the global south and the uh, and feeling the impacts of, you know, literally their homes being swallowed up by by the water um, uh, who, who might feel the impacts of climate change, you know, in sort of like a second and third degree you know, when there's a, you know, when there are more mass refugee crises because of climate disasters and, and things like that, right? So that's, so, so, the, so I feel like this may be getting lost in the metaphor and, and not, you know, what, uh, what we really ought to be talking about here, but, but it just felt to me that the, um, that the, that the asteroid metaphor sort of hit, missed the mark of what we're really dealing with and why climate change is such a challenging problem for us all to grapple with and deal with. Yeah. So I agree with that. In fact, the situation is even worse than, than the response to climate change because many people said, well, the problem is human beings are only set up to worry about a problem that faces us immediately and one that uh, crept up over a 40-year Timescale. I mean, in the mid 1970s, people knew, including the companies knew, uh, but lied instead of because of the money involved. So the uh, virus, however, didn't take 40 years for people right. to know it, and we still screwed it up incredibly. So I do want to come back to the uh, the impact of the money. Because when you talked about what I and we, it's now not just the Shalom Center, thank God. Uh, it's Hazon uh, and Dayenu um, and the Jewish Climate Action Network of Massachusetts and New York City. And, and all those groups, all of them, have joined together in an amalgam we're calling the Exodus Alliance. This has just happened in the last two months. And we're focused on the coming of Pesach. I mentioned the whole notion of pharaohs and plagues. And what we're going to be focusing on in terms of action is not the federal government, because it's irredeemably until maybe another election or two, irredeemably deadlocked and when I say deadlock, it's a deadly deadlock. Um, but what we're going to be doing is focusing on some of the major investors in the companies that are making, are burning the earth. Uh, so, for instance, um, uh, Chase Bank, which exists practically everywhere with this. Uh, uh, branches is the number one worldwide investor in the uh, companies of fossil fuel. So we're going to be aiming at that uh, to get them to withdraw the money, the investing and invested. Uh, we're not just talking about divestment, but reinvestment. Uh, the slogan we're using is move our money protect our planet. Uh, and 
the whole idea is not just to talk about avoiding death, but about creating life with the money. So that that's, uh, in fact, if people want to uh, look at that, there's now like two days old, a new uh, website called uh, exodusalliance.org, exodusalliance.org. Uh, dot, dot org. And there's a whole call to action and there are people and a whole number of organizations have signed up and uh, not all of them Jewish. Bill McKibben's new group called Third Act, meaning uh, people, I guess over 60 or thereabouts uh, in their third act of life, um, uh, have joined in a green faith, which is a a global multi-religious organization has joined in, et cetera. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. And we're using the religious symbols and practices. And I mean, we're planning to create uh, street seders for use on the third and fourth and fifth day of Pesach uh, at the door of the uh, uh, your local uh, uh, Chase Bank. So religion ought not to be the enemy of life. <laughs> it's, it's really, really. Uh, I, I, I sort of wonder, um, not, not to be the pessimist, because I so appreciate, Arthur, what you said, that so much of Torah, it, you know, there, there are consequences for our actions. And you talked earlier about uh, some of what the Israelites went through was a consequence for for Gan Eden and, and that sort of thing. Um, there are a number of individuals that suggest that uh, we are just about uh, at the precipice uh, where, where there's no turning back, right? That that we are very close to the point um, where we cannot reverse this climate crisis. Um, we come from a faith tradition where tshuva is deeply rooted in who we are, that we beat our chest three times daily and ask God to, to forgive us for our transgressions. But that means three times daily, we have the opportunity to change our ways and start over. Um, what do we do with this idea that, uh, uh, how do we how, how do we deal with a world in which we may not be able to change our ways? Uh, Torah talks about in the creation story uh, when when God says uh, you should fill the earth, it says you, you should rule over it and master it. But many of our mefarshim suggest that that means not just that we are the top of the food chain, but rather that we have that responsibility to protect the earth uh, as as the master of of the earth. Um, what do we do if, uh, again, I hate to be so bleak, but if we're too late? What do we do? We keep, we keep living, we keep loving, we keep acting. Uh, my son has been working on climate policy for 20 years in Washington. I ask him how he responds to exactly what you're just saying. He said, I just keep putting one foot in front of the, the other. Um, he keeps working on it. It may, in his lifetime, not 
it may be in his lifetime, it will be clear that the earth uh, is responding to being badly treated with upheaval and that shatters everything we know, or it may be that the work he's doing does something to, uh, to heal the break between Adam and Adama, the, the human and the humus, or the earth and the earthling. I love the Hebrew because it gets a sense of the interconnection of uh, earth and human. Uh, the word environment means out there somewhere, somewhere on the edge, but the Adam and Adama means this, and that's the truth. Uh, somebody, one of the rabbis, I think, said that tshuva is not just a Jewish thing. The tshuva had to be created before the whole rest of the universe <laughs> because we were sure to screw up and it had to be there first so that we could amend our ways. So I want to ask a, a, a slightly different question, but it's a related one. Um, which is, um, you know, it, <clears throat> Adam McKay, the director of, of Don't Look Up, you know, said that, uh, you know, one of his goals in, in making this movie was, you know, that, you know, if he, if he filled it with all of these, you know, big name Hollywood stars, that a very broad audience would see it and some minds would change, right? He said, you know, he, he, he envisioned in his head uh, um, Joe Manchin's grandkids uh, telling him to, you know, like saying like, hey, grandpa, let's watch this new Leonardo DiCaprio movie. And he sits down and watches it. And and for at least a second, like thinks about what the message of the movie is, you know, vis-a-vis -vis his responsibility to climate change. I, it doesn't seem like that imagined scenario has, has happened, at least not yet. Um, sure. And, you know, it, it felt to me in watching it that I wondered if a movie like this would change even one mind about the, you know, the impending climate disaster. So I guess what I want to know is, you know, uh, how do you talk to people on the other side of this issue, people who, you know, are um, not convinced that climate change is real or that it's as significant a threat as uh, as as the scientific community says that it is that that there are things that we need to do to address it how do you talk to them or do you say i'm not really going to talk to them because i'm not going to convince them and better to you know uh better to preach to the choir because the choir needs to be reminded of what they believe from time to time too to energize to energize the faithful and, and mobilize them to make a difference. That's what I feel like a movie like this is doing. It's more speaking to people like me that already agree with the premise and, you know, riling me up to, to take more action. So one thing I want to say is I think there's a better movie. Avatar was really about the same issue. Uh, and what interested me, especially about Avatar, was that the resistance to the crushers who were after unobtainium, uh, the energy fuel of that planet or moon, uh, the blue-skinned people were not the only resistance. There was the equivalent of the plagues. That is, the rivers, the trees, especially the trees, joined the resistance, and that's what worked. Avatar, uh, I, I liked when it first came out, 
um, Avatar was a sci-fi film uh, on a different planet, um, allegorical in, in nature. I think the message is much more direct with don't look up. Um, I also worry um, what you said, Mike, are, are the people who need to hear this really hearing this. Um, although, um, like uh, if you talk to any campaigners, uh, you know, who, who are running for office, they don't necessarily uh, try to uh, knock on doors uh, of those in the opposing party. They knock on doors of those who are uh, affiliated as independents. Right. That that's we, we say all the time that every election is decided by the quote unquote swing voter, that there are people who are no matter what stuck in their camps, the parties that they affiliate with. And it's the swing voters that decide the election. Uh, I wonder if a movie like this is trying to target the swing voter, uh, not those who are uh, dead set on, on climate deniers. Uh, well, it does make fun of those who are climate deniers. Um, it's trying to influence the the uh, those in the middle. It's trying to influence the swing voter. So uh, what I think is happening is that there's been a huge change in just the last two years. Uh, the fires in California, the heat, intense heat wave in Oregon, the freeze in Texas, uh, floods in the Midwest are taking people who are re either skeptical or, yeah, I know there's a climate thing, but it won't affect me, are beginning to say, wait a minute, this is real and it's real now. So that's one of the reasons that I'm hoping that the faith communities will in fact respond with what's necessary. They have in the past made the crucial difference in American society. It's not just uh, the swing vote. It's a massive deep vote that doesn't get engaged very easily, but when it does can make a huge difference. My, I think that, that there's been a real change, whether we know whether, we, whether it will be, have been turned out to be, Soon enough is not clear, but there's been a real change in the willingness of people to see the truth and act on it. Arthur, I, I so appreciate uh, your Torah, um, your optimism, uh, and uh, the charge that you've given us. Uh, Mike, maybe the answer is that uh, we, we need a, a song by Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi to, to uh tell us to, to be aware of climate change in this world like the movie does. Maybe that that is the answer. I, I think that, uh, you know, more seriously and probably more effectively is what uh, is what Arthur is calling for here, which is people of faith and people of conscience to, to continue raising their voices about this issue because He's right. You know, I, I, I can't think of a significant moral issue in the history of our country that hasn't been either advanced or obstructed uh, through the leadership of the of the faith community. Um, and, uh, and and so, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm really grateful for the leadership of, of people like uh, like Arthur, who um, have been, you know, uh, really trying to bring this to uh, collective consciousness and and uh, and um, generate uh, passion and uh, and momentum uh, uh, toward making a difference uh, uh, 
in, in this area and, and in other of the great you know, moral challenges of our time. And I think that you know, um, our, our political leadership you know, the movie, I think, reflected this, you know, the uh, Meryl Streep's uh, president, um, you know, uh, takes the steps that she takes uh, because of what's politically expedient for her. And so I think that part of the answer is, you know, we have to make it such that uh, that that climate action um, is the politically expedient choice for for our leaders. And I think nothing is ultimately going to change um, unless uh, unless our, our leaders you know, recognize that, that that we care about this issue and we're going to uh, vote them in or out of office uh, based on uh, based on that concern. All right. So let me ask again for people who are heated up in a good way by this whole conversation, to look at uh, the website, exodusalliance.org, because you'll find there people and ideas and thoughts and uh, resources to be able to act during the next several months and beyond the next several months. Thank you. Thank you. With, with that, uh, uh, plug it in mind. Um, we want to thank you, Arthur, for joining us uh, for this conversation. Um, I, I think of the Talmudic teaching in which um, we plant the seeds of our carob tree, not for us to bear the fruits, uh, but for uh, just as those who, who planted for us, let us plant for our children. Uh, that's what's at stake. Uh, it's our obligation uh, to, to plant um, and to change this crisis, not because we will be impacted by it in the same way, but to save this world, literally, uh, not hyperbolically, literally save this world for our children, for our grandchildren, for our great-grandchildren. Amen. Amen. A story that we often tell on Tubishvat, which as we're recording this, we just celebrated yesterday, the uh, Jewish New Year of the Trees, an opportunity to reflect on our uh, commitments and, and obligations to uh, to the world in which we in inhabit. Uh, and uh, and we celebrate this Tubishvat during, as uh, Arthur was describing to us before, a, a Shemitah year, um, a, a Shabbat for the earth. And so um, uh, we, uh, we uh, pray and, and call upon um, all of our uh, listeners to, uh, to to join in uh, embracing that spirit from the Torah that, uh, that that and that Torah that Arthur teaches and shares um, and shared with us today uh, so so meaningfully. Arthur Waskow, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm excited that you felt it important to share all of this with people. Thank you. Uh, amen. Amen. And and hopefully uh, uh, your your Torah. Um, will be heard by many. Uh, smash that subscribe button uh, to hear more uh, of our Torah as well. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone.